welcome to the Inspirational Insights Podcast. My name is Donna Jones, your host, and with me today is Pim DeMore, the one half of two parts of Corporate Rebels. Uh, Corporate Rebels is made up of both uh, Yost, Yost Manier and, and Pim, who both left corporate jobs where work wasn't fun, bureaucracy was stifling, and their mission was to find workplaces where you could have fun and do great things at the same time. So off they traveled to meet people behind the inspiring workplaces that were around the world and leading edge thinkers. I love their blog. It's, it's obviously received international acclaim. They've just published a book that is not unsurprisingly called The Corporate Rebels. <laughs> so that makes perfect sense. I've been following them for years because I've been interviewing and visiting companies they've been visiting, although obviously not as many. And, and because one expression of my own personal purpose it includes shifting workplaces so people can bring their whole selves to work and giving them the skills to do so. So their blog has taught me a lot about everything and I'm really looking forward to exploring what responsible leadership looks like in different places around the world. Pim, let's start by telling us what did you learn in your journey across all continents? What were you looking for? What did you find? <laughs> uh, that's going to be hard to summarize, but um, uh, well, what we were looking for was quite simple. As you mentioned, we quit our corporate jobs because we were quite frustrated with the way that most large organizations are run. So very traditional top-down command and control organizations. Um, and while working there for about three and a half years, we get completely fed up with those companies. And so Joost and myself, we've been good friends for a very long time since we were 12 years old. And we said to each other, how can we work in organizations like this, uh, doing, in a sense, what we uh, had studied for, um, also doing what we, what we liked. But the way the organizations were structured was just completely demotivating and um, um, frustrating us to a very high extent. So we said, what can we do about it so we don't have to continue working for 40 more years in organizations like this? And we said, let's look for answers. Let's uh, find a way to make work more fun. So this was the main idea when we started Corporate Rebels. How can we make work more fun? And fun, not just in a shallow, superficial kind of way, but um, um, more in a way that you actually have work that you enjoy doing, that you're passionate about, that you really feel you're contributing to something that you actually believe in. So we set out to find um, organizations, academics, um, entrepreneurs, all kinds of people in organizations that could teach us something about making work more fun. Um, and what we learned, uh, well, we learned quite, quite a lot, as you can imagine, because we visited more than 100 of those workplace pioneers. Um, and what it, if you want to make it very, very simple, what it comes down to um, is that these organizations actually believe people are responsible, sensible adults, and that if they come into the workplace, um, they don't need to be told what to do. Um, they can be um, actually handled like if they are uh, responsible adults um, and organizations that we visited actually don't only say they believe that, but also act as if they believe that. So they give a lot of freedom, a lot of responsibility and a lot of uh, trust to people who work in their companies. And they simply say, well, we don't need all of these rules in place that dictate how people should be doing their job. Let's just trust one another. Let's find a way to collaborate with each other that is actually beneficial for the people, but also for the organization. Um, and let's not make everything all too complicated. Let's just find a way to properly work together as, uh, as adults. What a concept. Very simple. 
Yep. It's very simple. Unfortunately, not a lot of companies think it's simple, but <laughs> I know. And some of that, that rhetoric is coming up now with the, you know, in terms of the forced idea of remote working for companies that would normally never even contemplate that, but now they don't have any other choice. And so some of those mantras are coming up like, well, employees have to, they have to earn my trust in order for them to be working. You're going, oh my gosh. So these are, I think from my point of view, it's a huge opening. What we're going through right now globally with the COVID is a huge opening for companies to make a big radical jump in how they work. If they decide to do that, I mean, you've been working with companies that have made that jump or started that way just because there was foresight and vision. Um, when, when you sort of visualize what those companies that are putting their toe in the water toward trust and autonomy and some of the principles that make these things work, what's the big challenge, do you think? Well, I think the main challenge at first is to actually believe people are not abusing the freedom um, and that they won't start doing all these things that will, like in many organizations, people believe that if you don't tell them to work from nine to five, that they don't come into the workplace at all. Um, and even now, when you see that companies have to allow their employees to, to work remotely, some companies still decide to micromanage their people. Like I published a blog last week on our website um, talking about remote work and all of the like everybody's coming up now with tips on how you should work remotely um, you cannot open a web uh, browser or an app and you get all these tips from so-called experts shoved down your throat and still even if you work remotely there's a hundred thousand ways to do it in the end what it comes down to is that you trust your people to do also their work that they would normally do in the office but then just at home or wherever it is, they can do it. And still organizations out there are micromanaging their people, even if they're not in the office. So telling them to let their managers know when they're taking a break at home, for example. Seriously? Um, that's happening? Yeah, that's happening. And, wow. and you wouldn't even believe the place where that's happening. So we, we found an email last week um, that was an internal email uh, from the Wall Street Journal where they send their people their, no, it wasn't really tips, it was more their policy for uh, remote work. Um, and it says, uh, let me, I, I've got it here. It says, for example, uh, while you're working from home, you should respond within just a few minutes to a Slack or Google Hangout message from your colleagues. Let your manager know when you are taking a break, conducting an interview, in a meeting, or will otherwise be unavailable for a while. So, Literally, that means if you have to go to the toilet, please let your manager know. <laughs> oh, that's exactly what that means. And that was the first thought I had. Oh, yeah. my gosh. And the worst thing is, like, these are highly educated people. They're journalists that are covering the world's most complex topics, right? Yeah. And then you are going to explain them how they should work remotely. And you tell them, literally, that when they go to the toilet, they have to tell you if they do so. so yeah, you got to tell the grown-ups. Tell the grown-ups what you're doing. <laughs> it's a child, parent-child relationship. It's, uh, that's disturbing. And it's terrible. So uh, even in times like these, organizations still feel like they are, should hang on to these, this controlling of people and the, the idea that if they are not uh, being told what to do, they will just be, I don't know, relaxing at home or something. I don't know what these companies think, but it's, it doesn't make a lot of sense. No, it certainly doesn't. I, I'm the other part of the question that I have, I remember it went last fall I was in Portugal and, and I was moderating with the World Agility Forum and it, we were talking about the, the use of agile in, in sort of doing the transformational arc for these companies. And somebody said something about it taking 40 years and I thought, oh my gosh, 
you know, it, it, there's, there's countries that have done better things in less, like in a, in a, in 10 years. So, so what, you know, if you look at the arc of transformation, what speeds it up? I mean, obviously that kind of behavior slows it down considerably. What, what do you think are the accelerators for helping companies get better at trusting people, their own people, the ones they hire and pay, and also getting good work done? Yeah. Well, um, <laughs> first of all, I think, and that is the, maybe the upside of the, the crisis that we're currently facing, is that crises actually sometimes force organizations or countries or whatever it is to change more quickly because they simply have to adapt. There's no alternative. Um, and we see this also in the companies that transform from traditional to progressive. Some organizations simply do it because they are hitting such a bad crisis, could be a financial crisis or another crisis, that they have to find a way to work differently to overcome the crisis. Um, so this, could be, this, is, this is a reason for quite some organizations to transform towards more progressive ways of working. Um, could be, for example, a competitor who comes into their marketplace and who completely disrupts the way all of the organizations are working and they simply have to adapt as well with, if they want to stay alive. Um, so this could be one reason. Um, sometimes it's because of the leader of such an organization who um, experiences a personal crisis. Um, and because of that, for example, a, a burnout or some, something happening in their families and they start looking differently at life um, and therefore also start looking differently at the workplace. And thinking about okay, how if we why the hell are we doing things a certain way here? Uh, maybe there's an alternative, and these new I, new concepts that enter their life enter their life can also sometimes transform the workplaces they are leading. Yeah, I mean, this is I, that's why I think COVID is such a great opportunity because it's a crisis that does force I mean, to me all crises, whether they're life's interruptions in the category of, of my life's just got interrupted. Now what? Or in the category of our whole business world just got interrupted. So now what? It's the place where you can self-examine, throw things up, take a look at things differently, widen the lens, which is a, a huge factor. Now, let me ask you something else about, about uh, K2K, because this is one of my favorite organizations in Europe, because they have, I think, hit something, hit on something, the way they structure their transformational processes, they hit on yep. something that gets missed in a lot of companies, and that's commitment. <laughs> if, you, if you look at, at what happens when companies transform, they typically leave out the part of how committed are we to this. And so there's this half-baked, you know, well, let's pretend we've got the language but we don't, we're not actually committed to doing it. So we can, it, it's this undertow, what I call an undertow in the messy middle that gets created because people just aren't, aren't in it. They're not in the, they're mm -hmm. not in it at all. What, mm -hmm. what have you seen? I mean, you know, talk about K2K, K2K, what is it? 2K? K2K. Thank yeah. you. I did have it right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, uh oh, what did I do there? But, you know, uh, talk about K2K if you would, and also what else you've seen uh, and how that, how that sort of applies. Yeah, so um, I really like that you uh, pick up the example of K2K because we're they're still some of the most amazing people and organizations that we've seen now. So they've been able to transform around 70 organizations from traditional to very progressive. So they have uh, high elements of self-management, radical transparency in their workplace, um, a lot of intrinsic equality when it comes to the peoples. And they've been really doing a really good job transforming these organizations. And it's all just in the region of, region of Bilbao in Spain. Um, so their impact has been uh, really, really big. 
And I think they do a couple of things really well in how they transform. So one thing they do is, as you mentioned, to get commitment from people in the organization. They start at the top. So they say, if we um, want to go down such a radical transformation path, if we want to get rid of hierarchy, et cetera, et cetera, then um, people at the top have to be in it. Otherwise, it will be shut down somewhere when we start changing the more serious things. So they, the first thing they do is they get want to get commitment from all of the shareholders. So 100% of the shareholders have to say, yes, we want to go down this radical transformation path because we believe it's better for our business and better for our people. If all shareholders say yes, then they go to step number two, which is getting even more commitment. And then they want commitment from the CEO. So he or she has to sign a letter, literally, stating, I am in favor of this transformation. Um, I'm going to support it as good as I can. If um, K2K, so if the consulting firm does not believe I'm supporting the transformation or if they think I'm getting in the way of the transformation um, for whatever reason, then they can put me out of my position. So they more or less sign their own resignation letter. So if they are underperforming as uh, transformation leaders, they will be put in a different position in the company. So this is serious commitment. So if these CEOs sign that document, K2K has the opportunity to put them in a different position if they're not supporting the transformation. So um, you bet those people are committed to making it succeed. But then you still have just the shareholders and the CEO. So the third thing they do is get even more commitment. And then it's from the rest of the people working in the organization. So what they are doing, they shut down the entire operations of, for example, a factory. And if they transform this factory, they say to all of the people working there, go to any other progressive organizations to talk to the people who work there to understand what it's like to work in a progressive company. Um, so they don't go there with the employees, but the employees go by themselves because they don't want to um, bias their perspectives um, or want to, I don't know, make, make it look better than it actually is. So they just send the employees over there and say, interview anybody you want to talk to and get a feeling for what those people feel it's like to work in a company like that. Then after two days, they come back they have a big general assembly and they let the employees vote um, in favor of the transformation or against the transformation. So if less than 80% of the people say, yes, I want to transform, then they don't do it. And they say, okay, we are going to focus on another organization that is more willing to change. Um, if more than 80% of the staff say, yes, we want to make this transformation, then they go ahead and start transforming that company. So, then they have commitment from the entire organization plus its shareholders, and then they start making the move. Interestingly, there's also something in it for the people. So the people working in that company, they benefit financially if the transformation leads to improvements in profit. So um, I believe it's 30% of the profit that is additionally to the profit they already had is distributed among the people working in the company. 70% goes to the shareholders. So everybody benefits. And this is an interesting thing. So first of all, you get commitment from everybody in the organization plus the shareholders. And then you make sure there's also something in it. So there's a direct incentive for people to make that transformation work. And this is quite the opposite of what we see in traditional organizations where you have, or just the CEO or just some people at the top or people from an organizational development department who want to push a transformation through the organization. Nobody's committed. 
at first. Um, and also nobody's incentivized to make it work because people will get their paycheck anyway. For them, it's just more hassle to make all these changes and transformations. And there's nothing in it for them. So why would they be motivated to actually make that transformation work? So they do a couple of things really well. And I think those elements we see in quite some organizations. And I believe more traditional organizations should learn from that because it has some very simple but also very powerful elements to it. It does. It's, it's wonderful. I love it because a lot, you know, every time I look at systems and, and I, you know, you read the patterns in an organization, you, you can see the places where they're st- they get stuck. And, and consistently when you put everybody together, they would say, okay, it's HR and middle management because middle management don't want to give up their power that is vested in authority. And, and HR are, are just kind of stuck in an older role that doesn't really fit to today's times. What yep. have you What have you seen in that area in terms of you know when you when these companies are looking at the, making those those kinds of shifts? Uh, what happens to those two areas, the middle management and the HR? How do they work with it? Um, <laughs> well, in some organizations, middle management is scared to change because they feel, especially if you look at self managing organizations, like self managing most of the time means there's not a single manager in the entire organization. So for them, that might feel like, okay, I'm going to lose my job for sure because now I'm a manager in that new organization. There are no managers, so probably I'll be out. But interestingly, also, if you look at K2K, that's not what they do. So they say also before they're going to transform, they say we're not going to fire anybody because of economical reasons. So we're not going to fire you um, because we um, um, don't have the money uh, to pay for you anymore. Um, so only when you violate certain uh, rules, for example, if you steal from the company, all these kinds of, you would be fired for anyway, then you are, uh, you can actually be fired, um, but not for any other reason. So not because they are getting rid of managers um, of man- or management layers. So this already in itself, again, gives people a lot of confidence that they won't be fired during the transformation. And because of that financial incentive, there's also something in it for them personally. Um, so once again, you see some differences here between uh, how traditional companies change and how more progressives change. And most of the time, interestingly, in many of these organizations, if we talk to people who've moved from this manager position back into the team or into an expert role or something that they are, are really good at, they often feel um, more enthusiastic than they were in their manager role. Because sometimes it's just... a the reason why they become a manager is because they want to make more money or they want to achieve a higher status. And in traditional organizations, the only way to do it is to become a manager, even if you don't really want to be, but it's the way to make more money is the way to get more status. So um, in these organizations, they also find ways to do that differently. So for example, if you want to develop yourself in something you're really good at, for example, engineering or doing sales, then you can develop yourself in that and you can earn big salaries or get more status, but not based on the title you have, but based on the actual expertise and the value you add to an organization or a team. So the old dynamics also change and there's not really this fight for moving to the top of an organization. It's much more an intrinsic um, development. So people constantly developing their career based on their uh, talents, on the stuff they like to do most, and then finding a way to add value through those uh, skills and those expertise, which I think is way more um, fulfilling 
it, it first of all takes off a huge weight of stress because I think when in management roles, what they're typically doing is taking on the weight of everybody. The success sits on me. So that's a lot of pressure. It's a lot of stress. And, but when you shift it to a self-management role, it's shared, it's distributed. And, and it's uh, much, um, much more equitable in that sense. Yeah. And most of the time, a middle management position is a pretty shitty position to be in <laughs> because the people at the top dictate what's going to happen. So they set the strategy, they determine what's going to happen in the company. And then there's the people at the front line who have to do their daily work. So they add most of the value. Yeah. And then as a middle manager, you're just somewhere in between and you have to find a way for frontline staff to do what it is, uh, what the people at the top want them to do. Yeah. So most of the time when we talk to them, they are also not really enjoying their jobs. Um, and they believe they can also add more value in another role or in another um, way to the teams they're supporting. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I always used to think of them as being in the sandwich. You know, it's sort of like yeah. these two layers and they end up being stuck in the middle. Uh, you wrote a really interesting article, maybe it was Yost, but it was the article that sort of looked at the world and said, here is some, how some of these different, you know, man, self-managed companies are, are evolving globally and geographically. What are the, you know, in other words, what's the impact of culture on what shape these, these self-managed designs take in the workplace? Yeah. So we have China, we have, you know, in other words, the Asian perspective, we have the European perspective, there's the American version. Um, and I think there was one, there were four categories. Can we, yep. can we talk about that a bit and just, mm -hmm. uh, just look at what are the differences? Is it, is it a geographically cultural influence that, that uh, for example, Howard is, you know, all these, these um, entrepreneurial units that competing, you know, against one another, or is it more just here's what we're going to try and do? And in other words, it's independent of, of culture and geography. Yeah. So um, first of all, that's Joost's uh, expertise. So that he's doing a PhD at the moment on organizations that are large, that are self-managing. Um, and um, he's really investigating how these companies function. So how can you organize such a large company with more than 10,000 people without the need for middle management? So what alternative process or practice or tools do you need to put in place to make sure you can scale an organization uh, like that? So in that post that you're referring to, um, he talked about the quadrants of his model. So you have um, the different ways of uh, functioning for these organizations. Some have an internal marketplace where there's a lot of competition. So one company or one team actually competes with another team. Um, or on the other side, there's collaboration where all the teams collaborate towards a common purpose. And at the same time, the other quadrants or the other X says um, you are um, either an ad hoc team. So depending on a project, you form a team. Once a project finishes, you find a new team to add value to uh, that new project or fixed teams. So where you have constantly working with the same team to um, um, add value and to deliver something to your customers. And he talked about these cultural references, not so much because they exist mostly in specific cultures, but from which cultures they originated. So he looked at different cases, for example, the hire example. Um, it's a large organization, a Chinese company that makes refrigerators and all kinds of other white goods like washing machines, etc. Um, they employ 75,000 people and they are split up into more than 4,000 smaller companies, which they call micro enterprises. And these micro enterprises compete with one another internally for projects. 
So, for example, in a normal organization, you would have a traditional HR department. In, in hire, you don't have an HR department that gets their fixed budgets and spend it to support the organization as good as possible. But they have different HR micro enterprises, so small companies that compete as if they were startups providing similar services. So they have to do a good job in order for internal customers to buy their services or products. So if one HR micro enterprise is underperforming, they don't have any money, they cannot pay salaries, they will go bankrupt if they have that for a long period of time. So there's a very strong element of competition in that organization. At the same time, if you look at another large self-managing organization like uh, Buurtzorg, for example, which is healthcare organization employing 15,000 nurses, but they are structured very different. So they also don't have middle management, but they are structured very different than higher. They don't have this competition element because the nurses work together in teams of 10 to 12 nurses and they all focus on one geographical area. So if you would have one small town here in the Netherlands um, who have uh, two teams of Buurtzorg working there, for example, you would have one team in the north of the village and another team in the south of the village and they are not competing because they each have their geographical area. You cannot take customers from somebody else because they want the teams to collaborate and not to compete. So there's these differences in how companies structure themselves based on what the organization, what kind of behavior the organization wants to see and wants to uh, incentivize. So at Buurtzorg, that's more about their purpose, about their collaboration. At Hire, that's very much focused on entrepreneurship so if you do very well, you can also get make a lot of money. You can grow your company into a bigger one and then split up into smaller ones um, if you continue to develop the company. Um, so it's, it's, it depends very much on what kind of behavior you actually want to see inside your organization. Um, and with that post and with Joost's PhD research, he very much focuses on, um, first of all, let's determine the behavior you want to see. And then let's look at what kind of structure um, does actually fit with that um, ideal behavior you're looking for. Right. You know, I'm glad you raised Burtzorg because I think I interviewed Jost de Bloch probably in 2016, somewhere in there. I can't remember exactly what year it was. And what, what really got me excited was, you know, the sectors have an impact. So the healthcare sector was measuring numbers, not quality of, of service. And when, you know, and this is where I'll need your help, but, but as Burtzorg did its thing and started to move forward, it impacted entirely how the health insurance worked. In other words, there's a wider systemic effect on how, what kind of, you know, how things evolve, what, what your focus is. And their focus was quality of care, 100% on quality of care and the continuity of care. Can you share? Yeah, that's. Yeah, and that's interesting. So we see that in quite some of these organizations. At first, obviously, they have to um, adhere to all the rules and the policies dictated by governments or by regulatory bodies, for example. And obviously, they have to listen to it. So there's no way around it. But sometimes these organizations go a little bit outside of those rules. So to, they're pushing the boundaries a little bit, showing that an alternative way of working might actually be beneficial for whatever it is the organization tries to do. In Buurtzorg's case, providing good quality healthcare. So also Buurtzorg shows that by doing things a little bit different, they can actually provide better healthcare. Therefore, the regulatory bodies or the government in this case sees that the way Buurtzorg is acting can actually lead to better care. And they then start to adopt 
uh, also different rules and regulations that better fit what Buurtzorg is trying to do. So they're not just supporting the change in their organization itself and with their customers, but they are also supporting and changing actually the wider system. And I think this is such a powerful thing about these companies, which is also why we refer to them constantly as corporate rebels. Like these organizations are not just pushing their own boundaries, but they're also pushing the boundaries of other organizations or even governments because they show that another way of working can be beneficial, not just for the employees, but also for the customers and for um, um, countries as a whole and society as a whole. And I think this is an important thing to mention and to stress that these companies, like many people um, are get into this victim role where they say, well, we're in banking, so we cannot change a damn thing because everybody's telling us how to do our job. And um, we're in healthcare, so we cannot change anything because if we make a mistake, we might kill somebody. Um, yes, that's 100% true. But in the current system, a lot of mistakes might happen and you might kill people because of those mistakes as well. So it doesn't necessarily mean you're doing things the right way right now. So that, and many of these organizations try to push the boundaries simply because they believe that it will benefit not just their organization, but society as a whole. And by doing this, you can definitely improve the world a little bit by pushing the boundaries and by not um, um, listening and following all of the rules very specifically, um, because then never anything will change. Um, and the only thing that will happen is that you will get more and more and more rules um, instead of less and instead of trusting more uh, the professionals that are working in your organization. Yeah, and increasingly the view gets, becomes more and more myopic. You know, so now corporate revels and, and yeah, I mean, one of the things that I was, I was thinking about the armchair skeptics, because what I notice is when companies want to do experiments or when there's a desire or an intention to set an experiment, the inner voices run something like our inner critics do in our heads, which is, well, that's going to fail. Or, you know, there's all of these critics going on. When you have witnessed the leadership role inside these companies, how do they handle and how do they use those kinds of tensions? Um, very differently. So some just push through and they say, well, um, uh, stop whining and we're just going to try it. So <laughs> let's see, let's see what happens. Um, others, um, do it a bit. Um, they, so when these organizations transform, it doesn't, it doesn't happen overnight. It can take a very long time. And these organizations also don't transform the entire companies at once, mostly. Some do so, but it's very risky and it doesn't happen that often. But many leaders decide, okay, if we want to transform, let's just start and work with a couple of teams or one department um, and figure out how we can make this transformation, what new way of working actually fits our type of company. Um, and then if they, they, they kind of use one department or a couple of teams as a sort of guinea pig, as a, as a lab to figure out, okay, what works and what doesn't work. And once they find a way that actually works for that company, then they can see how they can scale that new way of working. So that makes it way less risky. Um, and that's mostly how these leaders try to avoid the, the, the um, how, do you, how did you call them? Armchair critics um, that feel that this is not going to work anyway. And I guess it's a bit, of, a bit the same as entrepreneurship, where... A lot of people, when entrepreneurs start a company, a lot of people say, well, this is never going to happen because of this, this, and that. Well, it's easy to say. Um, but then these people go out and they uh, w 
if they achieve success, then these armchair critics will say, yeah, yeah, yeah I always thought they were going to be successful. And blah, blah, blah. Um, but these entrepreneurs are not going to focus on the critics, right? So they're not going to go, going to focus on those critics and saying, well, I want to sell you this product because I really believe in it, blah, blah, blah. They're going to focus on the people that want their services that are looking for what they try to do with the world or whatever it is that their products try to do. Um, so they focus on the ones that are willing to adopt it. And the same as in these changes that organizations try to make. So these leaders focus on, okay, who are actually the ones that want to change? Let's start with them. Let's show what we can do. And then other people will follow along that don't want to be in that pioneering position, but that prefer to be following the lead of others. Yeah, that makes sense. Natural hierarchy. I'd be really, I'd feel like I didn't uh, do my job if we didn't talk a bit about this hierarchy thing, because if there's one thing that you hear a lot of, it's like, there needs to be hierarchy. No, there doesn't. And it, how you, it's how, I mean, I said, when I wrote decision-making for dummies in 20, 2014, I said, it's how you use it. You know, it's not, not so much whether it exists or not. It's, it's just how do you use it? And in your conversation with Richard Atherton, which I listened to on Being Human, you talked about natural hierarchy. And I thought, well, that's really cool. Let's talk about that. <laughs> what is it? Um, well, in the beginning, when we started, we were on some uh, topics maybe a bit more radical than we are now. Um, because, and one of the things we said constantly was, well, organizations should get rid of their hierarchy. And in a sense, this is still what I believe but uh, a bit more nuanced. So if you look at organizations, the ones we talk about, and if we talk about organizations that are getting rid of their hierarchies, we talk about the functional hierarchy. So the artificial hierarchy, where you say, okay, one person is a frontline staff, then you, somebody is appointed to be the manager of that person, and then that manager uh, will decide for that team what's going to happen. So that's the person making decisions and then you get all these levels all the way up to the CEO and then you have the most powerful person there. Um, most of the time, that's not based on natural leadership um, and people sometimes in their leadership positions feel as if they are forced to be a leader and they have to act as a leader and they start doing things differently than they would normally in a group when they would be among a group of people. So these organizations, if they get rid of their functional hierarchy, so the artificial hierarchy where you have the CEO on top, lots of management layers, and then the frontline stuff, um, it actually creates a space for natural leadership to arise. So in any group of people, there are some people who would love to take the lead and others who prefer to follow. Um, this is a very natural thing to happen. I, I don't believe there will ever be a different situation where nobody will... Uh, or the, where there will not be any natural hierarchy in teams. There will always be somebody who has more influence than another person. Um, the sad thing is that in traditional companies, people don't have the ability to express that natural type of leadership because even if you might be a more natural leader than your manager, um, the system doesn't allow it because that person still needs to be able, uh, he, he needs to be there or she needs to be the person making decisions. So, um, the interesting thing is when these organizations get rid of these artificial structures, you see actually that this natural type of leadership arises and that people who are naturally good at leading other people and influencing a group of people um, actually get the opportunity to do so. And one of the, and I'm not sure if I also mentioned this in the interview with, Rich, with Richard, but I really like this quote that a lot of these companies use. Like, if you want to be a leader, you better find some followers 
and this is what makes sense, right? It's in, in anything you want to do outside of work as well. If you want to achieve something, if you want to organize something with your friends, you have to show leadership. Otherwise, it's not going to happen. Or you have to find somebody who wants to take the lead in it. But that's still, I think, a type of leadership. So um, I, this is really the beauty of hierarchy in organizations. But it's the natural hierarchy and not so much the artificial hierarchy that we put in place in traditional structures. Yeah, that makes a tremendous sense. I know Valve, I mean, the video game company, that it runs its its whole project operation on natural hierarchy. If you put a project forward and people don't join up to to do it, you don't put the project. The project goes nowhere. It's, if it doesn't have traction, you just have it. Which doesn't that make sense? You know, rather than forcing something through that doesn't have support. So, yeah, it makes I'm, a lot of sense. And 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 imagine if things like that would happen in your group of friends. So somebody dictates what's going to happen, and you have to do it. Well, that's never going to work. Yeah, never. That's right. It just works against all social norms. <laughs> totally. Yeah. And I mean, after all, companies are living systems of relationships. And, and that's so, so they're very much run on social and emotional energy. Yep. yep. So. One more question for you before I let you, let you go. And, I, it, and of course, unsurprisingly, it's going to be about decision making because I maintain that the decision, we made, the way we made decisions in the past, which is, you know, linear step by step, completely ignoring impact uh, is, is finished. We, we really need to look at the whole system. We need to look at what impact we're having. It's a much more responsible level of decision-making. So when you have been in these companies, what, what have you witnessed with respect to how decisions get made, how they're distributed and, and, and all of that shift from somebody being, you know, taking on the full responsibility for the decision and maybe not consulting or, or not considering impact. We're seeing a lot of that right now. Fear will do that. So, yeah. so yeah, I mean, we're seeing a lot of what I would, you know, somebody pointed out to me the other day, you know, the, the dummy level decision-making, they're just making these decisions without considering consequences at all. Yeah. What have you seen in the, in the companies you visited? Um, if you simplify it very much, like this is a big generalization. So uh, one a uh, very simple lesson that we learn in many of these organizations is they use some kind of um, advice process. So somebody who um, picks up a certain topic or has a certain responsibility is um, the decision maker on that topic. And the only thing that's required of that person is to ask advice from people who are influenced by that decision or affected by that decision um, or people who have an expertise in that field. But the, that's just advice that they're gathering so they're not trying to find consensus um, and they're not making a decision all by themselves so they ask for advice look at that advice and then make a decision based on their personal judgment um, so one way or another many of these companies use it so it's slightly different here and slightly different there but what they also do and I, I really like this practice as well is you cannot you don't need to do this for every decision like what is important in environments that are really complex is to not just uh, talk about making a decision for a very long time, because by the time you've made a decision, the whole environment has changed already. Um, so it's about also about quick decision-making and then learning based on the outcomes of the decision that you've made. So let's set up an experiment or let's make a decision. Let's evaluate after a week or a month's time and let's see if it was actually a good decision or not, or we have to maybe adjust our course. So um, in general, if you would generalize this um, tremendously, then what we see is that if it's about decisions that are rather small, 
simply ask one or two people around you um, if they would also make a decision like this very quickly, like just ask somebody who's sitting right next to you to quickly check from somebody, okay, or check with somebody, is this a sensible decision? Um, so that's for the smaller ones. For the bigger decisions, use any form of the advice process where somebody who's responsible for a certain topic, let that person pick it up, gather advice from many people. Um, the bigger the decision, the more people you want to involve and then make a decision based on all the advice you get um, and evaluate that decision after a certain period of time to figure out if it was actually a good decision or not. Makes sense. I, I love that. I love that because I mean, responsibility and decision-making is the ingredient we're adding into it now, because up until now, decision-making has been extremely reckless. And, you know, right now as well with the COVID thing happening, we're seeing some seriously reckless decisions that are very short-termism and not taking into account the longer term. So um, I appreciate what you just said. It gives some, it gives some benchmark for slowing down, being more in the moment, taking, taking pause, taking advice, and then making a decision that's based on more of the executive brain and, and less the, uh, the fear, the fear side. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Where to from here? Corporate rebels. I mean, we, you talked about Yost. He's doing his research. You're, you're now sort of leading the, the prow of the boat of the corporate rebel boat, so to speak. <laughs> what, what happens next? Um, well, the, this year is going to be an interesting year uh, looking at the book. So we published last week or last month uh, our book in English. Um, next Tuesday, it's going to be published in Dutch as well. So our home uh, or our native language. Um, then now it's being translated into French and German. And we're also talking to Russian, Chinese and Spanish and Italian translators. And that's all going to come out this year, hopefully. Um, so this year is going to be all about sharing the book, sharing the stories in the, in the book of those pioneering companies. Um, and in the meantime, we're setting up um, um, two things, actually. So on the one hand, an online academy where people who are interested in the topic and who love our blog want to dive into it in much more detail, also learning from each other and not so much just from us. Uh, but also from the companies that we've been visiting. So the pioneering organizations like Beardsorg, like Hire, um, who want to share more in-depth what they, the trouble they run into, the solutions they have for it, et cetera, et cetera. So that's an online learning environment we want to create. And at the same time, we're now um, setting up a pilot in Sweden where we're going to work with a group of companies um, on a, a two-year trajectory where we're going to, um, I guess, every three to four months um, go over there or do online sessions um, where we get a group of companies together who are interested to become more progressive and we're going to support them throughout that transformation journey. So they're going to learn a lot from each other. They're going to learn a bit from us and from more bucket list organizations uh, to understand how they can become more progressive and in a sense then also how they can work, make their work more fun. So that's the, the, the main thing we're going to work on now for the, for the next couple of months. It's going to be very quiet because mostly we do talks and workshops and, set, uh, and all over the world. Uh, but as the complete travel has come to a complete stop and all the events have come to a complete stop, we have a very um, 
a clear and clean agenda for the next couple of months. <laughs> so we have a lot of time actually to f start working on these ideas. And, yeah, I think uh, we're all in that boat. We're all sort of pulling back and, and thinking, you know, it just how, what, what do we put online? I just finished interviewing uh, Vizzy and uh, yep. Tom, yeah, Tom Vanderloop. So that was a, a great conversation. You've got this bucket list. You, I imagine it's going to grow. What's yep, it's yeah, it's constantly uh, growing. So we started with a list of about 35 people and organizations. Now we're at 170, of which we visited about 120, I believe. Um, and it continues to grow. So every time we find a new company or a person that we really want to learn from, we add it to the list and we try to visit it as uh, quickly as possible. And then we share what we learn through our blog and through uh, interviews like this. Yeah, no, wonderful. I want to thank you so very much for being on the program. A wonderful chat. I've been looking forward to this for a long, long time. So thanks for taking the time. Corporate Rebels, the book is available on all the regular channels. Uh, anything that, you know, the website, people can go there, read the blog. Anything else you'd like to offer? No, that's it. Everything's on the website. So if they want to have all that free content, go to the website. And uh, there's more than enough for you to uh, dive into this topic. Absolutely right. I've been doing that for a while. Thanks very much, Pam. Thank you. A lot of fun talking to Pam. I do hope you enjoyed that program. Again, my name is Donna Jones. My work involves both providing insights, revealing the blind spots for executive and management decision makers, engaging leaders at every single level in organizations to be more responsive, seeing organizations as living systems so that you can actually stay, keep pace with what's going on in the world today in terms of complexity and surprises. Uh, you can reach me on LinkedIn, D-A-W-N-A-H Jones is the uh, LinkedIn profile link. Uh, you can also go to me, get to me on Twitter, D-A-W-N-A underscore Jones. And of course, um, uh, I'm on Facebook. My website is from insighttoaction.com. Thanks for joining me. Look forward to doing more programs and to uh, hearing more from you on what you'd like to hear.